Welcome to Beyond Politics. We're broadcasting WKXLAM and FM, and we are available wherever you get your podcasts in the known universe. I'm Paul Hodes. Now, half of you know that, but the other half are wondering, who is this guy and what has he done with Chuck and John? The answer is that I'm a former congressman from New Hampshire, and my co-host, Matt Robeson, is a former senior staffer, campaign manager. In fact, he was my chief of staff, and we have a podcast called Beyond Politics. And today, we've invaded the podcast feed of an awesome show called Apod Latia for a crossover episode. By the end of it, we hope that all of our listeners will have decided to subscribe to Apod Latia, and that all of their listeners will have decided to subscribe to our show, Beyond Politics. So the answer is... Chuck and John are just fine. We've got them right here. They're the hosts of Apod Latchia, and we're going to talk about rural politics, economic development, guitars, and all the issues that bind people in West Virginia and New Hampshire and across America all together. So here we go. Chuck, Cora, John Eisner, tell us a little bit about who you are and why you created Apod Latchia and what it's all about. Well, I think that's probably the best intro that we've ever <laughs> received, so thank you. Uh, my name is Chuck Cora. I'm here with my, my co-host, John Eisner. Apod Latchia is a podcast that we started back in December 2019 because we really wanted to provide a counter-narrative to the stereotypes about Appalachia, the harmful narratives about Appalachia, and really provide an alternative voice for it. And so it was kind of born out of the campaign that John, in fact, ran for House of Delegates in West Virginia. And, and I'll let him talk a little bit about that. But it was in the Eastern Panhandle, West Virginia. It was a, a really tough campaign. We came up short, but the issues that we talked about um, on that campaign, and, and I was one of his senior advisors, we wanted to keep talking about it. And we noticed that that even though he was unsuccessful in winning, there was so much energy around some of the issues we were talking about. And we wanted to broaden that scope outside of just West Virginia and all of Appalachia. So we kind of started this on a whim and, uh, and we've just invested a ton of time and energy into it. And the people that we've met along the way have been really incredible. We've had some incredible conversations with people um, that I'm sure we'll talk about, but it, it's been a really fun journey. And, and John, feel free to, to add anything else in you want. No, I mean, it, it really is one of those things that uh, we never planned for this to happen. It just kind of sprang up and has been, uh, luckily, somewhat successful so far and hopefully will continue to grow. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that you don't see coming <laughs> and uh, then it's just it's there all of a sudden. So, yeah, it grew out of a campaign that uh, obviously didn't go the way we wanted, but you know, hindsight being 2020, looking back, you know, it kind of did uh, now that we're now that we're doing this. So one of the things that really strikes me about your show, and I think this is important for our, our New Hampshire listeners, our listeners on Beyond Politics around the country, is it's so obvious listening to your show how much Appalachian issues are American issues. It's a really amazing lens through which to look at our current political moment. And if you think about it, Really, the the eye of the political needle is is Appalachia right now. You've got Mitch McConnell leading Senate Republicans, the most the senior most Republican in America right now, and you have Joe Manchin, 
at the epicenter of democratic politics, he he is the determining factor in what's going to happen on the democratic side or not. So all the issues that you guys confront on your show are they're, they're either echoing in the rest of the country or um, the, the rest of the country is, is sort of taking their lead from you. So, I mean, none more so than I think the, the recent focus you've had and we've happened to have, have on our show on voting rights. You did a show um, very recently uh, where you reviewed the various attempts going on th throughout Appalachian states to restrict voting rights. And, and we've been talking about it as well. What have you guys been finding in your examination and what is going on in all of those states? Yeah, that's a great question. And Matt, you're absolutely right that the issues in Appalachia affect are, are issues that are felt across the country. You know, what we found is, again, I think this is another issue that's across the country in places like Arizona, and you mentioned as well, um, is that there are efforts primarily, I would say, by Republican legislatures throughout the country, especially in Appalachia, to make it harder to vote, whether that is by, you know, making it more inconvenient, um, requiring ID, you know, you can rattle off all the different types of ways that there are restrictions. And I think um, a lot of what people don't really think about is is just how like a small inconvenience can disenfranchise an entire group of people, you know, taking away one drop box in a really busy part of Atlanta or requiring um, an ID in a place where it's really hard to get an ID or where it's really hard to transport yourself to get an ID. And, you know, I saw this a lot when I lived and worked in Tennessee. It was one of the one of the states where where voter turnout is actually the lowest. And part of the reason why is because it's so difficult to vote. You have issues like vote purging, where if you're literally not an active enough voter, your name is kicked off the voter roll. And if you don't have same day registration like they don't in Tennessee, then you're pretty much SOL when it comes to wanting to vote. You may not even know you can't vote. So so these are the issues we focus on because, you know, a lot of times people like to paint Appalachia with a broad brush. And and I'm sure you all have heard this before. They'll say like, well, you know, Kentucky doesn't doesn't represent my values because they vote in a certain way. And, you know, our response to that is, you know, yes, they're, the state certainly does vote in one way, but, you know, enfranchise everybody to vote and then see how it looks. And, because a lot of people are not able to vote. And, and a lot, like turnout is is just really low in parts of Appalachia and, and it shows. And so that was one of the, the key focuses for us. I'm curious to just follow up on that, Chuck, to ask, um, why, why is such low turnout? Why, why is turnout so low? That's, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't have all the answers to that, but a lot of it is barriers. Um, I, and a lot of it is, is the, the difficulties that we've, we've talked about. You know, I think I'll draw back to Tennessee again. Um, you don't have same day voter registration. So you had to have already planned to register to vote before election day. You have a lot of vote purging. And if somebody say has switched their address um, and hasn't gotten their mail in a couple weeks or, or what have you, and they're not notified that they're not on the list, then they're disenfranchised. They can't vote. There's also a lot of people who are either poor or in rural areas who can't get to the polls or who can't take off work to go vote that are also disenfranchised as well. I mean, you have a, a number of these issues which 
for a lot of people who can get out and regularly vote, they probably don't think about very much, but it really is harmful. And, and oftentimes it affects minority populations and, and oftentimes it affects uh, impoverished or more economically disadvantaged uh, uh, populations. Well, you know, Paul, we had your former colleague, John Sarbanes, who was the author of the For the People Act, which is the big push from the Democratic side. What, what did, why don't you summarize? I mean, what, what did we hear from your former congressman uh, colleague, John, about why this is so important, why this, why this federal effort is, is so meaningful to try to hold back the tide of all these voting restrictions? Well, obviously, when, you know, I mean, just to raise one example, look at what just happened in the great state of Georgia, not exactly Appalachia, but I mean, in Georgia, the governor just signed uh, a, a law which prevents people from giving food and water to people who are standing on the endless lines trying to vote. And the endless lines, by the way, having been created by the restrictions already in place to prevent people from voting. But now the governor of Georgia wants to make sure that they're dropping dead of exhaustion and dehydration and starvation while they're waiting in the endless lines to vote. So I mean, that's just a small example of what the bill that John Sarbanes has worked on. And I, I mean, I worked on it when I was in Congress, I don't know how many years ago, trying to make sure that various, that democracy was saved because John's bottom line was that, I mean, to save our democracy, to keep it vibrant, you've got to get people to vote. And the restrictions that have been put in place, there has been a huge effort over the past years to restrict voting from the Supreme Court to the state legislatures. Um, and it has taken Herculean efforts. Look at what Stacey Abrams had to do in Georgia, the, the kind of organizing she had to do and the result. And frankly, Republicans are worried about it because when people vote, Republicans lose. Um, and, and that, you know, they will say, what do we do? We, we don't do anything about our politics. We stop people from voting. So, you know, H.R. 1 is intended to repair some of the damage that was done by the Supreme Court and simply create some across the board um, uh, provisions that I call good guidance for state governments um, who have been reluctant to do basic smart things in the modern era that will make it easier for people to vote. Of course, the huge question in America, I mean, the question, the only question in American politics right now is it's sort of a daisy chain thing, right? The parties, the, the biggest fault line is this HR1, it's, it's the number one bill in the Senate as well. It's this For the People Act that you were talking about, Paul. And it's not going anywhere over the unified Republican opposition in both the House and the Senate. The Senate, of course, being the, the stopper, the ultimate stopper on it. And the only way to break that opposition is to get rid of the filibuster. But that's where our resident experts, Chuck and John, come in. You guys know your Senator Joe Manchin really well. And he has said not only that he opposes ending the filibuster, but that also when it comes to voting rights, he, wa he was just saying last week, he wants to find a bipartisan solution to that. So 
I mean, a million questions come out of that for me. What do you think he has in mind? And do you think that ultimately there is any way, given his political calculus in West Virginia, for him to get to a place where he says, you know what, there's no bipartisan middle ground. We're going to have to muscle this through. Uh, you're, you are right. We, we do know Joe pretty well. Um, we have some history with him. Uh, the, first off, I would lose my Appalachian card if I didn't point out that Georgia is part of Appalachia, at least okay. the top portion. Uh, well, that, so I, I, I would I would lose my card if I didn't point that out. That's that's just my Yankee ignorance. <laughs> no, I, hey, uh, trust me. My my mom's from Connecticut. I have to always tell her too. So don't worry. Uh, there and, and when it comes to when it comes to Joe, I mean, he's a very uh, he's a unique senator. He is also uh, a politician who is a politician to his core. He understands when he has power and what to do with it, and that's what makes him an effective leader. Uh, now, his he has a very uh, different kind of landscape than most of the other senators. Most of the other senators come from states that are either really Democratic and they're voted in based off being Democratic or they're really Republican and they win because they're Republican. But that's not the case here. In fact, Joe Manchin was the only statewide Democrat to win. And that's including uh, we just had a, a major upset for the treasurer here who was in office for 20 years uh, and, and he couldn't even win. So, Joe has done a, a really good job of navigating the waters. That being said, his big push has always been bipartisanship. That's, that's always been his thing. He's always run as if he's an independent with a D next to his name. That's, that's Joe Manchin. And so that's not going to change anytime soon. And he's not, I mean, I, if, if this is wrong, I will, uh, I will eat a hundred dollar bill or something odd like that. But Joe Manchin is, is not going to, to vote to end the filibuster. It's just not happening. Uh, he will continue to push for a different remedy. And with him saying something like bipartisanship, he's not saying that he wants to work with everybody. What he's saying is he wants something in return for his vote. That's what he's saying. That's that's Joe Manchin. That's and interesting. That's, that's why he's so effective. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he endorsed Susan Collins over her Democratic opponent. Right. Like, it, he he knows. Uh, I always use the term. He knows where his bread is buttered. I mean, he's he understands that. And you have to remember too, our the history of West Virginia. They had a very effective senator named Robert C. Byrd, who did the you know who Joe Manchin has always kind of looked up to as. Um, I would say he's kind of chasing his ghost, <laughs> you know, and uh, and he tries to emulate that at times, and this is one of those ways. That is really yeah. interesting. Oh, no, go, go, Chuck. Yeah. I was just going to add, I, I think I'm with John on this. The only world where I could ever see him voting to end the filibuster is if they were forced to, to pass some massive infrastructure bill that would significantly advantage West Virginia. And even that would be a stretch. And I don't think they would have to because reconciliation, but yeah, I, I just don't see a world where that happens. He just, it, it, he's played footsie with it for a long time, but I don't know. I just don't see it. You know, you're taking us right where I thought we might want to go next, which is, it is interesting you, you just John just invoked the name of of Robert Byrd, who is a legendary senator from West Virginia. And there used to be a joke around Capitol Hill when I was a staffer there that whatever other issues West Virginia might have, <clears throat> the federal highways were like glass because Robert Byrd was going to make sure that they got their end when it came to federal funding and all the formulas. But despite that, 
despite the focus from the federal government through advocates in the Senate over the years, it does remain the case that there's at least an image to the rest of the country of places like West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, really struggling with rural poverty, with lack of educational support. Um, and so it, it's brought up a whole host of issues around economic development in Appalachia, which by the way, again, echo throughout the country. They echo in New Hampshire. So what do you think is sort of the key to unlocking the economic development puzzle in Appalachia after so many decades of effort from the federal government? What would the right solution look like? I think part of the problem is if you look at the economic development that's gone through App Appalachia, it hasn't been to build the region. It's been to use the resources of the region. And that's always been the legislation that's been pushed at the federal level and even at the state level because they, they tend to mirror what's going on at the federal level. So if you look at the history of the region, uh, obviously coal mining is what everybody thinks of when it comes to West Virginia, Kentucky, those types of areas. Even though we're, we have vast resources elsewhere, coal mining tends to be what everybody talks about. Um, we didn't make out like bandits when it comes to that, even though it was, you know, it was our resources people were using. In fact, it was most money went out of state because people who were out of state were the ones who actually owned it. There's, there has to be the ability for Appalachia to grow with the times. And that's not something that's happened. In fact, our region is the one that lacks broadband the most throughout the country. And that is a massive issue when it's trying to be competitive on a national and even international scale. Because if you can't be competitive when it comes to providing resources for employers, why would they ever come here? There, there's just no point. They have so much other place, you know, so many other places that are gonna, are gonna vie for their business that as soon as we say we can't provide them with, you know, the internet service they need or, you know, access to, to resources that they have to have, they're just going to dump us, you know, to the wayside. And that's what we've seen. We've gotten a little better at it. Uh, but until we build up that infrastructure, I don't, I don't know how much economic development can actually happen, um, you know, based off legislation alone. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that. I would say too, um, you know, to John's point, a lot of the investments having gone to benefit the people, and when you have extraction industries like coal and Marcellus Shale, who are literally going in, pulling things out of the ground and essentially leaving, you know, it creates a huge problem because you'll see a lot of towns, especially in eastern Kentucky and south, southern West Virginia, that will just disappear after a coal mine leaves. And so I think you really have to look at the economy as a whole and how do you create something that's sustainable? And that's a that's an open question. I mean, there's there's real potential and renewable energy. There's real potential and a lot of a, a lot of different air industries, but it requires bold investment and sustained investment over time. You know, we're in an interesting situation right now because the the possibility for remote work has created an opportunity for people to move out of cities and into more rural parts of the country and it could really be an opportunity for businesses to maybe re like re-examine a place like Appalachia's and, and look at it as an opportunity for them to grow in a meaningful and sustainable way. Um, but that's, you know, to John's point, that's where things like rural broadband are really important and something that's really lacking in that region. So 
you know, it, this is a question you could probably you could probably do a year's worth of shows on uh, for your program. But I would say, like agreeing with John, I mean, there there has to be sustained investment that ultimately is going to benefit Appalachia over a long period of time. And we're not talking about just West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee. I mean, Appalachia stretches all the way down to northern Alabama and Mississippi, clear up to uh, uh, upstate New York and throughout a large portion of Pennsylvania. It's a really um, uh, a very prosperous region in many ways, but a lot of that has been taken advantage of. And so I think it's, you know, it really for us, and one thing we preach is, is the opportunity for Appalachia to kind of take the reins of its own, you know, destiny, where it, whereas it's been taken away from them for a long time. You know, here's a quick story um, about West Virginia uh, and me. I, I, I serve on the National Council on the Arts. I was appointed by President Obama, I'm, I'm serving, I don't know, I've been there since 2012. And we took a trip as a national council down to West Virginia and held one of our uh, public meetings down, down there. And I can tell you that one area where it looks like there has been both sustained interest, sustained development, and a, a, an understanding that arts and culture uh, especially in a rural state, mean tourism and and dollars. It looks like the arts are pretty, are celebrated and uh, uh, and invested in in West Virginia. I was amazed when I got down there to see that at the at the state capitol grounds, right where the where where the governor's mansion is, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a huge arts venue right right there. And the, the impression I got was that whatever other poverty may exist in West Virginia, whatever, wherever else they're behind, they are real leaders down there in, uh, in the arts and culture. Absolutely, right. It is, it is rich in arts and culture. And something, you know, that John and I talk about on the show, like one of our big things is dispelling the, the myths and stereotypes about Appalachia. And almost in a way, rebranding places like West Virginia, because we want people to recognize that about where we're from and about other parts of Appalachia, that there's there's a lot to it more so than like what you may hear in a 10 second sound clip on on mainstream media or something about some cherry picked story. You know, it, it's a really wonderful and prosperous place when it comes to the arts. And it's something that um, that I think has, again, has real potential for for West Virginia, especially and tourism, too. Now, those aren't enough to sustain an economy by itself. But I think people are starting to realize that, you know, places like that are, are, are wonderful places to visit and potentially move to to raise a family. It's really interesting that you say that a friend of mine, actually a mutual friend of, of Paul's and mine in New Hampshire, who's from West Virginia, used to say, you know, the last form of socially acceptable bigotry in America is bigotry against people from rural areas, especially from Appalachia. And it's it strikes me as a really important cultural function that you're fulfilling here of trying to dispel some of that. About 15 years ago, Paul, you used an economic development model from Appalachia as a, a means, as the basis for successful legislation that you passed to undertake economic development in the Northeast. So what was that all about? Sure. So, you know, Matt, Folks, Matt is being really humble here. I mean, it's it's kind of a radio technique of his where he'll throw something to me and act all aw shucks about it. Actually, what we're talking about is the Northern Border Regional Economic Development Commission. 
which uh, we passed when I was in Congress way back when. And the birth of that commission, actually establishing a new federal agency, which was designed to bring economic development to the rust belt, the, the snow belt, the ice belt of uh, the northern reaches of New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, the northern border. The, the, the idea, the genesis of that uh, came from the Appalachian Regional Economic Development Commission. Because uh, when I got to Congress, it turned out that, that the northern border was basically the only area of the country was in desperate straits, manufacturing had left, factories were closed, but it was the only area of the country that didn't have, didn't have an economic development commission that was a federal effort to invest in economic development. So Matt Robeson, who is a really smart guy, had had been working on this for a while before I got there because he was smart enough to get a job with the federal government before I could get one. And and when he brought it to me, I said, sure thing. Why not? And here's the here's the neat thing. The political story is. So we're in uh, it's 2007, 2008. I had just been elected from New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire is an interesting place politically because every four years we're the political epicenter of politics for about one week. And all eyes of the world turn to New Hampshire and everybody in New Hampshire, we all think we're special and that our state is the only state that counts in the political firmament. And to some degree, even down in Washington, at least at the time, that myth still held a lot of sway. So here I was freshman congressman from New Hampshire, and I'd gotten myself elected or chosen or appointed president of the incoming freshman class of 2006, the historic class that was the first Democratic majority since 1994. So there I was. So we figured that maybe, just maybe, the leadership would want to throw me a bone. And in fact, the leadership threw me a bone. We drafted, and I say we because it's Matt, drafted the Northern Border Regional Economic Division, uh, Commission based on the Appalachian Regional Commission structure. The leadership said, okay, we'll give it to you. And in the first year, we got a million dollars. I feel, you know, you know how Mike Myers um, would, would put his uh, little pinky up to his mouth and go, a million dollars. Well, we got a million dollars in the first year. And now, uh, over the past 15 years, that has grown so that New Hampshire has seen about $40 million plus of federal investment from this Economic Development Commission aimed at creating new jobs and supporting economic development. And the other states have seen uh, the same kind of help. Now, in the grand scheme of things, $40 million to some people sounds like a lot, but it's really pretty small uh, in the overall scheme of what it takes to revive or support a struggling economic area. And believe me, the northern reaches of the four states that are covered by the Northern Border Commission are, are not out of the woods. It's not like all of a sudden there has been a glorious resurgence of the, man, of the manufacturing era. The factories haven't just come flooding back in, but 
because there are, are real limits about what you can do with 40 million bucks. Sorry, folks, it's not a lot of money. So there are some real limitations to what um, can be done, but it's also done an awful lot of good work. And I'm betting that it's very similar um, in terms of results to what you guys have seen with the Appalachian Regional Commission. The, the, the ARC has done a lot of really, really awesome things for our region. I, I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't looked at uh, the commission that you're talking about. I know that when Matt and I spoke, he, he mentioned about, you know, how it was modeled after the ARC and, you know, how it had done a lot of, a lot of good things for the region. And I, if it's modeled after the ARC, I, I don't doubt that at all. The big thing that I would say, um, the thing that I always say when it comes to the ARC is it gave Appalachia a fighting chance. Uh, because before that, really, no one was paying much attention to the region. The region had continued to go through its same old, like, um, past industries leaving. Continue. It's, it's essentially the story that we've been telling for decades. Uh, but the ARC finally gave it a chance because it, it had the money to allocate to different parts of the region to allow any type of competition. Yeah, we're still lacking in this region, but it's because of the ARC that we actually have a fighting chance in any of the region. So, so this, those commissions, I think people overlook them often because they really kind of are, um, you know, they're quiet until they have to be loud type thing. Uh, but they really are a saving grace for a lot of the region. Yeah. So, and it really shined a light on, on Appalachia. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Chuck. I was just going to say I, I, to book in John's point, really it, it shined a light on Appalachia and it, I mean, it certainly has helped bring in funding to the region. You know, sometimes uh, with stuff like this, it can be a, a bandaid uh, on top of a bigger wound, but you got to start with one bandaid and, uh, and the ARC is certainly more than a bandaid, but it's done a fair amount of work. And really, I think focus, at least in the federal way, a lens on Appalachia where it wouldn't have had that, but for the ARC. Well, I think it's a good point that, that the key with these things is they're targeted. They're not large-scale solutions. And, you know, I, I think it, it's all about expectations. So if, if the thought is that a federal commission, uh, which is a federal and state and private partnership, is going to come in and wave some kind of a magic wand and, and unleash bushels of cash and thereby, thereby solve every problem in a state, that's the wrong benchmark. If the, the idea is that what the federal government can do is put in some of the lacking infrastructure, you know, Chuck, you were referring earlier to the opportunity that a lot of states with high rural rurality, it's called, um, now they now have this opportunity with this shift to more remote work. The, the limitation on that is going to be availability of broadband. That's one of the areas that these commissions focus on is targeted development of broadband capability. Another opportunity is a shift toward more green energy production. If you're a coal heavy, an extractive industry heavy type state, again, you know, what you, what you want to see from the federal government, I think, is something that is targeted at that exact kind of need. So to me, it's all about the expectations of what you're trying to achieve. Can I ask a question? I'm curious. So one of the things that, that is coming up 
um, in Congress, as we know, is looks like we're headed for an infrastructure green jobs package, which is really important for rural and Appalachian economic development. I'm curious as to whether what kind of efforts there are to help people who were in the coal industry, which despite all the efforts of Donald Trump and whatever blather he laid on it, is, uh, is not a, a growing an industry with a growing and thriving future. What efforts there are to help folks down there transition out of coal uh, and other fossil fuel extraction into a new green economy, if any? What's going on down there? This is, uh, this is one of our favorite topics because it allows us to bring up teaching minors to code, <laughs> uh, which, which essentially um, was a program that, that may have had some good intentions, but ended up being uh, really awful for the region. It was taken advantage of by a lot of different uh, quote unquote organizations. It didn't work out. Plus, Imagine this. So obviously you're you're a past congressman. Now imagine I walk up to you and I say you can never you can't you can't be a congressman anymore, but I'm going to send you over to Microsoft because they're going to teach you your new job. You have no intention of wanting to do that, I would figure. I mean maybe you do, but a lot of these miners they don't want to do that. So uh, the problem is that a lot of the programs that we've created push a certain type of job on you know miners or you know extraction workers whatever they they limit what they're able to do afterwards and i think that that's a, a really dangerous and almost ignorant way to look at things now there are people in the local communities who are trying to do things to help their local miners who are out of work and put them back to work uh, i think toyota has done a really uh, decent job in uh, bluefield west virginia i think is where they are they're there are certain opportunities. I, I don't think that there's enough. Uh, I, Chuck and I, when, when I was running for office, we had talked about a, a bill to essentially create tax incentives for employers to employ past coal miners who were out of work and hopefully give them good jobs. Obviously, uh, that never worked out, but it's things like that that we think could help. Uh, but we'd, we'd like to see more. Chuck, I know that you have some feelings on this as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get into my thoughts on the whole trope of retrain miners to code. But there are, I agree, there, there needs to be more. I know there's grant programs that help fund retraining into, I guess, whatever comparable industry, maybe oil and gas or, or something else where it's comparable to the skills that they have. The problem is, is that coal mining, and I'm by no means an expert, and I, I don't come from a coal mining family, but from people that I've talked to who are really close to it, it's you know, it's a very specialized um, technical job. It really is. It's not just someone taking a pickaxe down and underground and, and beating the hell out of a wall. It, it, it's really highly technical work and it's very specific. And so part of it's really hard to retrain, but part of it is like it, it's a cultural pride too. I mean, imagine working for 30 years and something and then being told, well, this, you know, your, your company went bankrupt, but if you want, you can, you know, take this grant and learn how to code on a computer you know, it's not the most dignifying thing. And so I think that the dignity of work, um, which is something a former guest of ours, uh, Senator Sherrod Brown has talked about a lot is it's something that I think needs to be emphasized more. And, and it's also it, more so than that, it's, it's investing in these coal mining communities that are disappearing. I mean, they're, they're literally becoming ghost towns because as the coal mine shuts down, which 
many coal companies have gone bankrupt in the past decade, like crazy amount. Um, these, these communities are left basically to die. And so, you know, I'd love to see, um, different levels of investment in different things. I mean, helping miners find dignified work that matches their skill or, or helping compensate them for the job that was lost because of an economy that's changed and also investing in renewable energy. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of human energy and wanting to bring renewable energy to Appalachia. And, and we're actually, I think, going to have a guest uh, coming up on the show uh, in the near future is going to talk about some of the unique ways to do that. But those are the, really the big things. But it is a really hard problem. And it's a hard problem not just because of the changing economy, because, you know, it, these people worked really hard, really hard jobs their whole lives and made a living out of it for their families. And it's, it's something that's really hard to grapple with. And we always say we support coal miners, the coal companies, we, we don't support, but we sort of support the miners 100%. You know, that really does connect, though. I, I think you're making an interesting point about a, a cultural pride, a pride of work, a dignity of work, and how hard it is from the Democrats' perspective, from especially progressives' perspective, where a lot of the language is very much, uh, it, it's not just anti-coal, anti-gas. It, it has a value judgment attached to it. It has a, these industries are bad. They are destroying the planet. And by association, the people who work in them must be bad. And whatever other baggage comes with our general cultural you know, anti-rural, anti-Appalachia bias, which we have, no doubt. So you, it's interesting, you guys had Charles Booker as a guest on your show. He's a noted progressive. What, what did you get out of that interview? And, and what do you think in general about the prospects for Democrats and especially for Democrats who may be allied with a more progressive wing of the party to make inroads in states like Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, some of these areas of Pennsylvania, it, are, are, is the party too tagged with this implicit value judgment that seems to uh, be against the, the folks who live in these places? Yeah, that's a great question. And I agree with your point. I think there's been uh, some unfair judgment levied against the people that work for companies that, that people don't like. I mean, I don't like Marcellus Shale. I don't like fracking, but I, I support the people that work in that industry because they're union jobs that help put food on the table for, for families. And you have to think about the human element of that before you just say that, oh, we should eliminate all of this and eliminate all these jobs because that's either their lives are destroying. Uh, that being said, to your point, Charles Booker is an interesting, um, an interesting person because, you know, he is very progressive. And John and I, um, when we talked to him, one thing that's interesting with him is he's progressive, but I think the way that he's able to communicate with both with with all types of Kentuckians is going to be really interesting. And I think it's it's hard to make inroads in some of those states. Uh, um, Congressman Hodes mentioned uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia earlier, and and we've talked about this on the show several times. Stacey Abrams and 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 Fair Fight and the people that were involved with that were working for decades. You know, before the headlines, before, you know, like the, the the big coverage of Georgia to to move the ball forward. And that plus, you know, a huge influx of people into the Atlanta metro area. Um, um, some of those are Appalachian counties like Gwinnett really helped. But it, it's 
you know, it's a lot of things. And, and you look at West Virginia, you look at Kentucky, you look at Tennessee, all three of those states used to be Democratic strongholds. I mean, when I was when I was entering college, four out of the five uh, members of our congressional delegation in West Virginia were Democrats. And I believe every statewide constitutional officer was. And, you, you know, and, and I think both houses of, uh, of the state legislature and you look now and it's completely flipped. Same with Tennessee. Very similar situation. Um, I, I used to work for, for a gentleman who managed Governor Phil Bredesen's two successful gubernatorial campaigns. And and you look at when he was elected where he won all 99 counties in Tennessee to today. And, and I mean, you know, it's virtually unrecognizable. So the thing to answer your question, though, it takes sustained effort over a long period of time and it takes organizing. And something that Charles Booker is doing that's interesting is he's very progressive, but he he is an organizer and he is building an infrastructure in Tennessee or excuse me, in, in Kentucky. And, you know, whether he ends up being successful statewide or not, uh, I think we could see something similar to what happened in places like Georgia or even Texas, where Beto O'Rourke ran. He wasn't successful in the statewide Senate race, but the down ballot effect of that flipped the different house districts have flipped local races. And I think that's something that Democrats often at the national level lose sight of that. They love focusing on the presidential election, Senate election, but the little, the, the state legislatures, the school boards, the county council and city council, county commission, all those matter so much, so much. And to your last point about the brand, and I'll kick it over to John because I know he's got lots of thoughts on this. The Democratic brand is damaged. And that that is... That's something where you need to have Democrats who can carve out their own brand. You, Jim Manchin, you know, he is a frustrating Democrat, but he is he he is a guy with a D next to his name that got elected statewide in West Virginia. You look at someone like Connor Lamb up in uh, in Pennsylvania, same thing. Yeah, the the Democratic Party is it's it's an interesting party right now. And this I, obviously this is coming from someone who ran in 2018 as a more centrist Democrat than most. I wasn't you know, really far left. It wasn't really far right. I was just kind of, you know, in the middle, uh, not the Joe Manchin centrist. That, <laughs> uh, he's a little bit farther right than I am. But that being said, it was it's it's not easy to connect in the Democratic Party right now, uh, wherever you may line up in the spectrum. So if you're far left, you're not going to be able to connect with those in the center. If you're in the center, you're not going to be able to connect with those who are far left. It's one of those really tough things. It's kind of like what the Republicans were going through in the the 2012 election where you had the rise of the Tea Party uh, within the Republican Party. I think you're starting to see that obviously not as extreme or, you know, uh, kind of out there. But there is that divide within the party, whether or not the party should move more left or whether or not the party should come back to center. The, the big thing here is the Democratic Party has to start believing they can win these races, because if they don't, they'll never win and they can't continue to give up. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, because for all of the media narrative about some of the divides in the Democratic Party, which, as you say, are paralleled by historic and current divides in the Republican Party, the fact of the matter is there is a track record. There, there are existing Democrats who are very successful in these places. And for all of the flack that Joe Manchin catches, he shows that it's possible to be politically dominant in a state that has trended Republican, where it, it can be difficult for Democrats to navigate. And in fact, he's a reminder that the, the political gravity of the party is actually mostly in the center. And so it's not impossible for Democrats to be competitive in these kinds of places. We have been talking 
here on Beyond Politics with Chuck Cora and John Eisner of Apod Latchia, a great podcast. We're their guests. They're our guests. They're our hosts. We're their hosts. It's a great show, and we really appreciate you guys being with us. For Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, this is Beyond Politics. Pick us up wherever your podcasts are cast and visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Thanks so much, folks. We'll be back next week with another Beyond Politics.